Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week, we learned about what defunding the police really means, spoke about the Black Panthers, and America's long hostility towards immigrants. All this plus the Trump Diaries, Size Matters, and AWCYFM, only on the Lumpen Week in Review for July 3rd, 2020. Chuck Mertz spoke with Adam Goodman about America's long history of expelling immigrants. How did a country founded on immigration become so hostile to people from abroad, and how have our politicians exploited that hostility? This is Hell airs every Thursday. What kind and of Sunday nation is the United States? Although celebrated in popular mythology as a nation of immigrants that has welcomed foreigners throughout its history, the United States has also deported nearly 57 million people since 1882, more than any other country in the world. With that seeming contradiction of what the United States is and what its popular, popular mythology claims it is, why is either that mythology or the policy of <clears throat> deportation sustainable? How, how do these two contradicting ideas of America persist? Why don't we simply come up with an immigration policy that reflects the myth or do away with the myth that we accept foreigners? In a way, I think the two go hand in hand. I mean, the United States is a nation of immigrants. Uh, it's also a nation that has consistently and selectively discriminated against certain immigrant groups for a number of reasons and deported those groups. And the very fact that there are immigrants in this country to begin with and much greater than numbers than in other countries means that historically the United States has had to decide who is allowed to enter, who is allowed to stay, um, and in turn, you know, who they will deport. So I think the identity of the United States as a nation of immigrants goes hand in hand with the country's identity as a deportation nation. So why don't those two things contradict each other? I, I just don't understand how how it's possible to hold those two in place at the same time. I guess my bigger issue then is not how it's done, but why it's done. Why is that myth so important to the mythologizing of the United States? Well, I mean, we could take just one example. If, for example, the United States had much harsher policies and didn't let anyone enter to begin with, there would be no one to deport if you follow my, yes, my thinking yes, here, yeah. you know, in, in that sense, you know, the nation of immigrants mythology uh, is complementary or tied to the deport, deportation nation narrative, which I've documented in great depth in, in the book. And I think that, you know, the deportation machine historically has functioned for a number of different reasons, you know, certainly in part to promote the bureaucratic interests of the immigration and naturalization service now the department of homeland security and you know they're always happy to you know celebrate their accomplishments and numbers of people apprehended and deported in hopes of getting more congressional funding uh the deportation machine has also been used for capitalist ends to maintain an exploitable immigrant labor force you know, historically that you know has always been the case who the immigrant labor force is has changed over time but the country's always depended on immigrant labor but not necessarily welcomed those immigrants as full members of society and therefore held the threat of deportation over them in order to extract labor and exploit those different groups. And then the third thing I would say in terms of how the deportation machine has worked and why it has is that you know, many U.S. officials and government officials from other countries have held explicitly racist beliefs about migrants. Uh, and this is tied to the point of not seeing them as full members of of uh, this country and of our society. And I think that migrants certainly and migrant communities have challenged that uh, at every point and every turn. But in terms of how our policies have been structured, oftentimes we are very happy to welcome migrants for their labor and not as interested in terms of national policymakers in welcoming them as um, U.S. citizens and in some cases even permanent residents. And we'll get to the uh, in depth to the exploitable labor force aspect of this. But you point out that a lot of the deportations that happen happen from far from public view. But far from public view should not mean far from the media's view. Why does this story? Why do the stories of the other kinds of deportation beyond just kind of the formal deportations? And when it comes to voluntary and self deportation, why are those stories seemingly not getting the attention it should receive in the news media? Because far too many people were unaware that the deportation machine in general that you write about had been operating prior to the Trump administration. So what explains to you why we know so little about deportations, why the media doesn't cover it more. 
you know, you picked up on something important there that I just want to comment on briefly before turning to the question. You know, this is an entirely bipartisan history. You know, there have been no good guys uh, in terms of the Democrats or the Republicans in this story. The history I trace is a bipartisan history over 140 years of both parties supporting and enacting you know, punitive immigration policies. So this isn't you know, Republicans bad, Democrats good. I think that there's perhaps an opportunity for change in the future, but we'll see. You know, but one of the really surprising things and one of the important insights from the book, as you mentioned, is that you know, of the 57 million deportations throughout U.S. history, 85 percent or even a little more have happened through informal means, right? Voluntary departure. Now, that's a euphemism. There's nothing voluntary uh, about these administrative deportations. Uh, what I liken them to in the book is the role that plea bargains play in the criminal justice system, and that U.S. officials have come to rely on extraordinary discretionary power among low-level agents on the line to make these decisions as to who stays and who is expelled. Right? In part, this is because of budgetary limitations and just an inability to process, to apprehend and remove all the people in the country without authorization. And the machine has come to rely on these fast track, unilateral, streamlined deportations with little to no oversight, little to no due process that are happening you know, every day, less so now perhaps than in the past, but historically, you know, tens of millions of people have been deported uh, by little or sorry, low level agents in different offices and outposts across the country without any kind of judicial process or uh, hearing that we might imagine people have you know, a chance to fight their case. That's just simply not how the deportation machine has worked. And as a result, it's become much harder and more difficult for the media and the public uh, to capture uh, and to better understand how the deportation machine operates and just how few rights non-citizens have when facing expulsion.
Smith chatted with Damon Williams Jr. about the protests roiling our city and what defunding the police really means. Williams talked about how the police have traditionally targeted people of color and in many cases made situations worse. News from the service entrance airs every Thursday at 2 p.m. Kicking myself still, I was thinking about it this morning. Damon, uh, Malcolm, London, and, and Damon's fiance, they were right down the street from my house when the police beat them up. They were literally, I could literally yell at you. I'm looking out the window now. I could have <laughs> yelled at you and been like, hey man. And and I, I feel so bad that I did not have my body on the ground with you out there uh, to at least try to get the dudes to slow up. But that being said, with all the work that you have done and the situations that you have faced mm-hmm. in that moment, man, what were you thinking about? If you were thinking about anything outside of, let me get these dudes up off me. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's definitely like a primary like mammalian response. That's something I always try to point out about police. Like, you know, no creature, no animal wants to be captured, wants to be beat, wants to be chased. Um, so there is just like a, a, a core base level DNA you know, fight or flight response that's dominant. You know, I also want to, you know, in that moment highlight one that it was, you know, a collective energy. So, you know, there, there were names that came out and I'm one of them. Uh, but, you know, we were there, you know, as an informal body, a group of people that have been in collaboration. So just to name that this is a, a collective movement mm-hmm. um, and part of like, I hear your, your, your guilt of like not being out there. There wasn't some big call for us to be there at that time. Uh, it really happened organically. We, we just happened to be meeting in Washington Park, when there was a protest that passed by and folks just came to support and, mm. you know, uh, just observe and bring medical supplies and just, you know, people with experience were just trying to support the fact that people are in movement and in action. Uh, right. And so by the time I got there, it was only about like five minutes before me parking my car illegally with the windows down because I'm thinking, oh, I'm just pulling up real quick to observe, to help folks move, to maybe drive somebody away when needed. Um, and the police started escalating on a community member. Uh, women, you know, women organizers uh, intervened and, and named, you know, the violation of the person's rights and, and was trying to interface and communicate with the man the police were attacking. Uh, and then their response to that was to then to attack these women uh, who mm. I care about deeply. Um, and so turning a corner and seeing that, because we were at the back of the action, uh, it was only like 20 of us that were really in the fray of this. Um, you know, it, it pushed me. So my first thought was protect my people, F the police, you know, it's kind of inherently, you know, in yeah. you. Uh, yeah. And then once it really escalated, there's this twofold thing of like pride of like not wanting to to back down and be defeated or, or in trying to protect your body also. Uh, and then this like surprise, you know, I don't want to call it fear, but awareness of my vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Um, and so things really changed for me after being slammed on my head, uh, which then caused a concussion. And so in that moment, uh, there was like a snap. Things became really clear. Things slowed down. Uh, I, I became aware of my, you know, I was moving on adrenaline, hadn't really been able to eat that much that day. So like the fatigue and the overexertion, once there are like four or five, six bo- bodies piling up on me uh, and I'm trying, you know, you know, I don't know if anybody's ever tried to do like boxing, but like, you know, get a, a, a minute round. <laughs> it's a long that, time. That takes a lot and so if you have like two to three minutes of trained equipped agents of militarism beating you and you have nothing and you have no legal protection uh the both and of i'm trying to protect myself and my people but also i can't do anything right like i can't if if i hit them it's a felony if they hit me it's you know it's it's a story for their lunch break um and so yeah it's a lot of things you got to be aware of and it really brought me back also to 2015 uh, mm-hmm. A lot of the people there were, were the same people who responded uh, when the video of the Laquan McDonald murder was released. Um, and so that night down, you know, near Michigan Avenue, people were arrested. People were beat with bites. My fiance again was pushed to the ground and I had to, you know, I, I knew what to do in May of this year right. because right. it had happened before. And so there was also an unfortunate and kind of perverse comfort and preparedness um, of it was not the first time I've been in this type of stressful situation. And so... That, I think, is a microcosm of what's going on at large right now, that there's all this uprising and all these new ideas, but just knowing that there's been at least five to six years of continuous experience built on 50 to 60 years of movement building, building right. built on four to 500 years of liberation struggle. Um, and so let feeling me, that me, confidence. Let me ask you something. Uh, aside from that, 
Yeah. When we talk Not about no, no, you're you're all good. We 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 we've heard and we keep hearing the phrase, and and it's it's directly related to this. And you said militarism, which is why I'm bringing this up now. The the defund the police yeah. mantra, right? Yeah. The fund the police, redirect the funds from the police. It's all the same house, maybe different names, same crib. How how does the fund the police for people who don't know what does that look like? Because I think people mistake the fund for the police for something other than taking funds to to, to stop militarizing them and turning those monies into things for schools and 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 resources for people in the hood. How, I mean, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't understand yeah. how people get so confused about it. Uh, so, like, as someone who tries to teach a facilitate around it before it was popular, um, it's not that complicated. Like, you know, I, I have now, I can exaggerate and say a thousand times, I can lowball and say a hundred times, had formal conversations with people about this idea. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't take more than five to ten minutes of some very basic premises, uh, some very basic facts and information for people to understand it, even if they don't yet agree. So right. even, like, when I hear people being like, un- not uncomfortable, that makes a lot of sense. And I affirm people being afraid or discomforted or, or confused. Uh, but when people say it's not clear uh, or, or I, you know, make it something else, that to me speaks to either a deeper trauma or just unchecked anti-blackness. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to go into explaining it, I think you framed it in a good way of like what's happening now. Yes, there were not the, the origin in the last five to six years, it goes back further, uh, but but since it's been like a continuous effort uh, under this idea of like divest from these systems of policing, mm-hmm. invest in community, has gone around for like the last five to six years, and it's under this umbrella of abolition, uh, mm-hmm. which gives this historical context. Everybody doesn't have to be an abolitionist to understand defunding the police is, is simple, so I'm going to get to that point in a second, but I just want to give like the big backdrop before yeah. we get into budgets and municipalities. Um, so there's just like, you know, we, we have to credit Angela Davis for this. Um, she borrowed from W.B. Du Bois's concept of abolitionist democracy and talking about reconstruction era society mm-hmm. in the South, um, and then associated that to the prison industrial complex in the mid 20th century. So that's really where it, that's if we want to place it, that's the origin of talking about police within this abolitionist framework. And then let's just pull out some very basic facts that everyone needs to know. Police started as slave patrol and native indigenous genocide. Uh, that is not a, a rumor. That is not a myth. That is not a metaphor. That is literal documented history fact. Uh, the police in Chicago specifically were started in 1830, the same year of the passage of, I forget the name of the actual act, the Indian Removal Act, the Native... Something like that. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The same year that we need to remove Native people is the year that we build a police force. And in most most other spaces, they had to redu- come from slave patrol and slave catching out of the Fugitive Slave Act, right? So those two policies of killing black and brown people um, and capturing our bodies is, is literally the start. Uh, right. And then we go to the Civil War, the end of chattel plantation slavery, and the passage of the 13th Amendment. And that then uh, uh, adjudicates uh, or legislates that in the United States, slavery can exist as punishment for a crime. It says slavery shall not exist in any of its jurisdiction, comma, except for punishment of a crime that has not been amended, that has not been changed, that's not a historical artifact, that is our current law and reality. So then people's basic human rights and also being exploited and being forced to inhumane conditions and labor and slavery. No, you know, we, don't, we don't have to define slavery. Slavery sure. is legal in the United States. So before I start talking about the budget and defunding, for me, there's just like a greater historical, ancestral, um, human place of slavery should not happen anywhere in the world. And it happens all over the world. And this is one of the institutions that houses it. And so we should, in any institution built Oh, I would say militarism as well, carceral militarism, which I use, but particularly slavery and torture um, okay. should not exist. So that's just like the claim before we get into any of the details. Then defund. Um, so yes, defund comes out of abolitionist uh, abolitionist movement. It is being co-opted. I guess that's okay because it's better than what the norm was six months ago. Right. Um, and so now people are trying to say, are these two different things? They really were connected. Uh, but if we want to just separate, isolate, defund. Most people just don't understand that just about every major American city spends most of its resources on police, that that is the number one investment. So so for anybody listening to this, think about anything you care about, anything, housing, parks, food, childcare, education, libraries, 
clubs, you know, in Chicago, Lakeshore Drive being paved, you know, whatever you want to happen in the city, the city prioritizes policing over that. Um, and so from a basic number standpoint in Chicago, we're talking about 40% of our budget. So to me, when I, when I hear the number 40%, that just messaged to me that you're, that's the opposite of a budget. The budget is supposed, supposed to be right. able to divvy up. They're supposed to be balanced. If right. you're spending two out of every $5 on anything, right, that, that is ineffective. Uh, and so for folks who are just, who are even opposed to abolition, there's even space to say, hey, what we're demanding in, in, in my body, in the Black Abolition Network, this defund CPD campaign, is immediately 75%. So 75% of almost $2 billion, $1.8 billion, is somewhere between $1.3 to $1.5 billion and what we're, a year. And what mm. we're saying is, in Chicago, put that money into housing, into our school systems, into mental health facilities, and then create new systems with the collaboration of communities, right? So there are community intervention programs, community distribution uh, organizations. Every neighborhood you can count has some type of space that is a model that we can continue to build and extrapolate. So uh, in addition to investing into the things that we already have, that we've been defunding, so for people also who think it's crazy, we've defunded schools, we've defunded housing, we've right. defunded mental health facilities, we've defunded public health at large and childcare and wealth, you know, all the things that people rely on to live, we defund that all the time and then put it into the system that I name as slavery and torture um, as a way to respond to the problems of defunding the things that people need. So I know I'm giving you like the big long answer. No, I'm more that. What we're saying yeah. is um, transfer those exact resources that we are investing into violence because I name even the best policing, the most kindest, le least biased, community facing policing is still violence. You're capturing someone's body and then putting them in a cage. Even if they've done something horrible, I don't think violence is a solution to violence. So what we do is invest in violence as a response to violence. So I believe that having this system like this actually creates the fact that people are shooting each other in the South and West Side, actually creates the fact that we have domestic abuse and, and that women, women and trans women are, are being killed and no one cares, right? Like the fact that our communities are so depleted then create this toxicity. And so this is the result of only investing into militarism. And we also do this on a global scale and on a federal scale. And then what we do to respond to the results is invest more into the causes. Uh, so there's tragedy, there's chaos going on in our communities. Go lock them kids up. Um, right. And just trying to break that cycle and say, let's use those same exact resources to things that are proven to be healthy because this system is not healthy. It's toxic and damaging. <laughs> Hey there, Jess. You ready to tape another episode of my life story? I was thinking we could go down to the rendering plant and I could talk about how I used to get slathered in pig fat and then let uh, the locals lick me off. Well, as special and disturbing as that sounds, I was kind of hoping for the day off. What's the occasion? If you must know, it's my birthday and... I was kind of hoping something would happen. Ah, Jess, I'm sorry. I had no idea. I, I, so I didn't even get you. Well, wait a second. Here you go. A birthday popsicle stick. Did you just pick that up off the ground? No. <laughs> There's no popsicle on it. Ah, jeez, I'm sorry. I didn't even know. That's okay. I, I didn't tell anybody. And I mean, most of my friends are uh, stuck in the southwest suburbs. So it's kind of hard to get together. Well, what do you guys usually do? Well, the last couple of years we've been going to King Spa. King Spa? It, uh, it's a spa. You know, like a sauna, a massage. Oh, a spa. We got those in Undertown. No, you don't. Jess, I'm going to take you to the best spa in Undertown. You're going to love it. Oh, it is that my... Do you hear my phone? I think my ride is coming oh, right Je now. Oh, come on, actually. Jess. Let your father get you this. What? <laughs> I'm just referencing a tossed-off plot device from Size Matters 75. Hey, did you notice our episodes are getting, like, super self-referential? It's almost like we're getting close to an anniversary or something. Anywho, come on, it's spot time. Do you think this is sanitary? Is it I just stole it from outside Kimsky, so I'm sure it I, is. I, I'm not super sure about this. Wait until you meet the spa host. Ah, here she is, Nudia. Huh? I'm better known as Octomomo. He... Octomom? Didn't you, like, kill a bunch of guys? 
No, no, no. I have multiple hands and some suckers on my tentacles. I'm suing that witch. Ooh, wow. It's so late, and I, I have to go do anything else. You just sit back, honey, and relax. Oh, ah. Uh, oh, oh, that's... Yeah, that... Ah, that's pretty relaxing. It's my secret six-handed massage. Now you just move here. Ooh, wow. Here, <laughs> this is great. And, here. and now for the scrub. Ah, uh, this is a little intense, Octomamo. Yes, but we have to get all the barnacles off you before you go back to the ocean, otherwise your gills won't work I, uh, I don't have gills, and I... I'm pretty sure I don't have particles. That's what all the mermaids say. I have two legs. I, I think you're starting to drop blood. Ah! Are you okay, Jess? Ah, Kyle, this is awful. Please save okay, me. Hey, Dr. Mamo, I think that's enough. We haven't even taken off the first layer of algae. I know, I know. I just... Kyle. Please, I'm sorry, Jess. I just tried to get you something for your I birthday. I know you meant well, but that was not relaxing. You're welcome, Jess. Happy birthdays. This week on the Trump Diaries, Russians offered bounties to kill American soldiers. Trump denies he was briefed. Trump's phone calls raise alarm. Virus cases surge as the CDC warns the pandemic is not under control. Trump and his allies are banned from two social media sites. Trump claims he looks like the Lone Ranger, and it gets worse and worse, folks. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 1254, June 26th. Another 1.48 million people filed for unemployment insurance across the U.S. last week as the economic toll of the coronavirus pandemic continued to pile up. In total, some 47 million have filed claims for unemployment in just the past three months. U.S. officials estimate that 20 million Americans have been infected with the coronavirus, a startling figure that is 10 times what has been announced. It means also the vast majority of the American population remains susceptible. The U.S. set a daily record for new cases for the third time in three days, passing the 40,000 mark for the first time. Meanwhile, the White House Coronavirus Task Force held its first briefing in two months. Vice President Mike Pence tried to take a victory lap, claiming, quote, we slowed the spread, we flattened the curve, we saved lives. He withered, however, under pointed questioning. Pence attempted to defend Trump's decision to resume holding campaign rallies, claiming, quote, the freedom of speech, the right to peaceably assemble, is enshrined in the Constitution. Even in a health crisis, the people don't forfeit our constitutional rights, and we have an election coming up this fall. Pence's words were immediately undercut on the same stage by Dr. Anthony Fauci. He gave a tart assessment of the problems and pleaded with people to wear masks and keep social distancing. Incredibly, during a pandemic, Trump asked the Supreme Court to invalidate the entire Affordable Care Act. Trump claimed that the entire ACA must fall, arguing the individual mandate was rendered unconstitutional after Congress ended financial penalties for not having health insurance. If the Supreme Court agrees, more than 23 million Americans would lose coverage. Trump's base, which are white, non-college-educated Republicans in rural areas, they make up the fastest-growing users of the ACA, driven largely by the pandemic. The court ruled that people seeking asylum from persecution have no right to a federal court hearing. The 7-2 ruling is a rare win for Trump and allows him to expedite the deportation of thousands of immigrants who have claimed to be escaping from persecution and torture in their home countries. Trump's nominee to take over the Manhattan Federal Prosecutor's Office refused to say whether he would recuse himself from current investigations involving Trump's inner circle. Trump nominated Jay Clayton, currently the chairman of the Securities and Exchange Commission and a golfing buddy, for U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York after firing Jeffrey Berman. Clayton has no trial or criminal legal experience. And Trump has been asking advisors whether he should stick with his current nickname for Joe Biden, Sleepy Joe, or try to coin another moniker such as Swampy Joe or Creepy Joe. Trump is not convinced that Sleepy Joe is particularly damaging. Some of his advisors agree and have urged him to stop using that nickname. Day 1255, June 27th. The European Union formally barred travelers from the U.S., Brazil, and Russia in a major rebuke to Trump's handling of coronavirus. Saying the U.S. had failed to contain the pandemic, the EU is barring any American passports from entering the bloc until further notice. The move has major economic and political ramifications given the close ties between the EU and the USA and will add to pressure on the Trump administration. 
Trump canceled his planned trip to his private golf club in Bedminster, New Jersey, but he claimed it had nothing to do with a new state order mandating a 14-day quarantine for visitors who have been in states with increasing number of cases. Trump, of course, has been in Arizona. Trump later tweeted he'd canceled the trip to stay in Washington to, quote, make sure law and order is enforced. Trump retweeted a video of a white man and woman aiming a semi-automatic rifle and a handgun at peaceful black protesters in St. Louis. The couple stood in front of their mansion with guns and repeatedly shouted, get out, private property, get out, at protesters. Trump personally requested that a statue of a Confederate general be restored after protesters in Washington, D.C. tore that monument down. Trump called Interior Secretary David Bernhardt and asked the Park Service to restore a statue of Brigadier General Albert Pike, a Confederate general whose statue had been controversial, in fact, for decades. The Trump campaign removed thousands of Do Not Sit Here, Please stickers from seats hours before Trump's rally at the BOK Center in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And Trump's campaign is trying to portray him as a builder who has pushed ahead with construction of a new wall at the southern border. Trump so far has built only three new miles of barriers across the U.S.-Mexico border. Day 1256, June 28th. In a major development, the CIA concluded that Russian spies secretly offered bounties to the Taliban for killing American troops in Afghanistan while peace talks were underway in 2019. The unit has been linked to assassinations in Europe as well. 20 Americans were killed in the Afghan theater during that period. It is the first known example of Russian spies orchestrating attacks on Western troops and is a massive escalation of a war between Russia and the U.S. Trump was reportedly briefed on the bounties in February but did not act. In the interim, he has talked to President Vladimir Putin seven times. The bombshell report stunned congressmen on both sides of the aisle, with some saying that if the report was true, it would be treasonous behavior. Twitch became the latest social media network to sanction Trump, banning him for what the network called hateful conduct. Twitch said the offending content has now been removed. Reddit also banned the biggest community devoted to Trump, called The Donald, as part of an overhaul of its hate speech policies. That Reddit community had created many of the memes Trump has retweeted. And Vice President Mike Pence reversed course in Texas, surprisingly publicly imploring Americans to wear face masks and practice social distancing. Dysfunction in Washington is exacerbating that crisis. With many Americans confused over guidelines, Trump so far has failed to respond this weekend. Instead, he continues to claim the virus will go away. Jacksonville, Florida instituted a citywide mask order. The Republican National Committee relocated its August convention to Jacksonville after Trump balked at Charlotte over wearing masks and social distancing. A federal judge has ruled that ICE must release children held in family detention centers by July 17th because of the pandemic. Also, a federal judge has ordered Roger Stone to report to prison on July 14th. Trump tweeted a video on Twitter of a supporter shouting, White Power! from a golf cart in Florida bearing Trump 2020 and America First signs. Trump thanked the great people of the villages in the video. A spokesman later claimed Trump did not hear the one statement made on the video and instead just heard tremendous enthusiasm from his many supporters. And Trump visited his private golf course in Virginia one day after claiming he was staying in D.C. to enforce law and order. Day 1257, June 29th. Coronavirus testing sites in the South and West were overwhelmed as the pandemic tore through Arizona, Florida, and Texas. Residents there waited in long lines. That crowding is raising the risk of co-infection. Nationwide, coronavirus cases have risen 65% over the past two weeks. Coronavirus has now infected 10 million people worldwide and killed half a million. Trump denied being told about a Russian bounty programming, claiming that nobody briefed or told me and they had just heard about it. Trump also claimed the intelligence community didn't brief Pence or Chief of Staff Mark Meadows about the Taliban bounty payments because they did not find this info credible. He then tweeted, quote, nobody has been tougher on Russia than Trump and called for the New York Times, which broke the story, to reveal its sourcing. White House Press Secretary Kayleigh McEnany was challenged later by a reporter who asked, quote, if Trump hasn't been briefed, how is he certain that Russia didn't put out this bounty and how does he know that the evidence isn't credible? McKenzie responded by accusing the New York Times of being absolutely irresponsible and then called on the Times and the Washington Post to turn in their Pulitzers before abruptly ending the briefing. Trump's denials were called not credible by current and former analysts who immediately produced evidence he had been briefed in February. John Bolton also publicly said he had briefed Trump in March. 
The revelations added to a growing fear that Trump had known for months about bounties against American troops but made no response to Russia. Facebook is now facing a major advertising boycott as several Fortune 500 companies have pulled their money from the social network. Unilever, Coca-Cola, and Honda have joined 300 other advertisers anger over Facebook's laissez-faire approach to manipulated political media and Trump's posts in particular. Facebook has lost $55 billion in market value due to the boycott this week. Trump's niece Mary was temporarily barred from releasing her upcoming book, Too Much and Never Enough. That was scheduled to be released in July. A judge issued a temporary restraining order to keep her from distributing the book or any excerpts until the court determines whether she's violating a confidentiality agreement with her relatives. A separate suit filed by brother Robert Trump was thrown out. Day 1258, June 30th. Dr. Anthony Fauci told the Senate in testimony the USA is going in the wrong direction with regards to the pandemic. Fauci said starkly he fears the infection rate will hit 100,000 a day if we do not turn this around. Quote, it's going to be very disturbing. It could get really bad. Cases are now up 87% in North America. Even here in Illinois, where cases have been flat, we are starting to see new increases. Senator Lamar Alexander, a powerful Republican, publicly called on Trump to start wearing a mask. Alexander cited a, quote, dangerous political divide between Republicans and Democrats over mask wearing and said the science was clear. He also said Trump had to set an example for the nation's well-being. Trump has refused to wear a mask, saying it makes him look weak. A Florida Department of Health data scientist said she was pressured to manipulate virus data so the state could rush reopening. That scientist, Rebecca Jones, said the reopening plan had already been set when she was asked to manually change numbers so that it would appear the virus's spread was better than it actually was. Florida is now seeing skyrocketing cases. Trump-aligned Governor Ron DeSantis called Jones's claims a, quote, conspiracy theory. In a major abortion decision, the Supreme Court struck down Louisiana's admitting privileges law as unconstitutional. That law, which required doctors performing abortions to have admitting privileges at nearby hospitals, would have left the state with a lone clinic. The vote was five to four. Chief Justice John Roberts joined the court's four-member liberal wing. Roberts said precedent compelled him to vote with the majority. And in a remarkable bit of public relations, the White House Press Secretary, Kayla McEnke, confirmed, quote, that the president does read. She was being pressed on reports that Trump had received at least two written briefings on Russian bounties. Day 1259, July 1st. A new investigation by Post reporter Carl Bernstein found that Trump was consistently unprepared and outplayed in phone conversations with world leaders. He was abusive to leaders of America's principal allies, and Trump's calls convinced senior U.S. officials, including his former secretaries of state and defense, two former national security advisors, and his chief of staff, that Trump himself posed a danger to the national security of the U.S. Calling Trump delusional, one person who heard most of the calls said that if members of Congress read the text, that even senior Republican members would no longer be able to retain confidence in Trump. Aides deliberately put transcript of the calls into high security not normally used for such calls to shield them from the general public. During the calls, Trump obsequiously courted Vladimir Putin's admiration and approval for reasons aides could not understand. Trump also spent much of the time on the calls denigrating George W. Bush and former President Barack Obama. Trump threatened to veto a must-pass defense spending bill if it included an amendment requiring the Pentagon to rename military bases after Confederate generals. The National Defense Authorization Act is to change the names of 10 U.S. military bases. Senate Republicans already say they will support the measure. Trump tweeted he would veto it if, quote, the Pocahontas Warren of All People Amendment, which will lead to the renaming plus other bad things, is in the bill. The U.S. bought nearly the entire global stock of one of the drugs proven to work against COVID-19. Remdesivir is the first drug to be approved by the FDA to treat the disease. Trump bought more than 500,000 doses, which is Gilead's entire stock for July, August, and September. In an unusual move, Trump's re-election campaign spent more than $325,000 on Facebook ads promoting the social media pages of his campaign manager, Brad Barscalite. The unusual deal raised eyebrows. Trump's campaign defended the move, saying it was testing the use of ads from different accounts. Trump claimed again that reports that Russia offered bounties was a hoax. This is all a made-up fake news media hoax to slander me and the Republican Party. 
in a related story, Senate Republicans forced the removal of a provision from a must-pass defense act that would have required presidential campaigns to report offers of foreign election assistance. Trump claimed that New York City's decision to paint the words Black Lives Matter on Fifth Avenue was a symbol of hate that would denigrate the luxury street outside Trump Tower. Mayor Bill de Blasio ordered the tribute be painted in large yellow letters on that street. He called Trump's tweet, quote, the definition of racism. And Trump has told aides he regrets following some of son-in-law Jared Kushner's political advice, referring to it as woke BS. Day 1260, July 2nd. States are now backing off reopening plans as virus cases continue to surge in the U.S. with an 87% rise in new diagnoses over the past two weeks. Many states have canceled fireworks displays and urged Americans to stay indoors on the traditionally raucous 4th of July weekend. L.A. County has suddenly closed all indoor dining at restaurants. The tri-state area also has moved to block indoor dining as well. Several other states are pausing their reopening, including neighboring Indiana. Meanwhile, as Trump's response to the pandemic continues to be widely criticized, and he seems oblivious to the issue, he told Fox News he thinks the virus is going to just sort of disappear. Republicans are breaking with the White House now in large numbers as Trump's polling begins to crater. Nearly 7 in 10 Americans think he has botched the job. U.S. companies added fewer jobs than expected in June. Businesses' payrolls increased by 2.37 million, that is under the 2.9 million expected, Unemployment added another 1.4 million Americans to the rolls, but hiring rebounded by close to 5 million jobs. Those numbers are now threatened by the latest outbreak. The Supreme Court agreed to temporarily shield Trump from further revelations about the Robert Mueller report, saying it will hear this fall a dispute over the release of the redacted portions. The court's decision in a one-line order means Democrats will not see the redacted parts of the report until at least next year. A federal judge dealt Trump another legal law, saying a policy that effectively bars most Central American migrants from the U.S. is unconstitutional. That judge, a Trump appointee, said that Trump's refusal to allow a public comment period after announcing the rule made it illegal. Trump claimed the comment period would have prompted migrants to rush the border. The judge called that claim false. A judge also ruled that Trump's niece Mary can release her tell-all book. Simon & Schuster won their case, noting they were bound by no such non-disclosure agreements and that they'd already printed 100,000 copies. Trump then said he's all for masks and would have no problem wearing one in public. Trump also said he thought he looked okay the one time he was seen wearing a face mask and that he resembled the Lone Ranger. Just 39% of Americans approve of the job Trump is doing. That's a historic low. 89% of Americans say they will wear face masks in public. 87% of Americans are dissatisfied with the way things are going in the country. 75% of Americans say they have severe and significant worries over the coronavirus pandemic. These are the Trump Diaries. Brian Meyer spoke with Glenn Ford, a journalist associated with the Black Panthers and founder of Black Agenda Report. Ford discussed mass incarceration and how the Panthers turned the tables on racist policing with their own community patrolling. Brian contributes to the Quarantine Times. So could you start off maybe just talking about that? What are the people demanding and why? Well, you know, in any particular city, uh, demonstrations might uh, be the site of lots of different demands. But all of these demonstrations, and the New York Times said that there were 2,000 demonstrations over a two-week period, all of these demonstrations, uh, the Black Lives Matter uh, slogans and Black Lives Matter banners uh, have dominated. But La Black Lives Matter uh, as an organization uh, has only 14 chapters in the United States, in 14 cities, and three chapters in Canada. Uh, so, but there were demonstrations in every state in the Union, and in most cities of any size, and in lots of cities that you never heard about, and in about five cities in New Hampshire, which has, has hardly any Black population at all. So clearly, these were not 2,000 Black Lives Matter demonstrations, but virtually all of them uh, were, in, at virtually all of them, Black Lives Matter uh, generated slogans, uh, demands, uh, placards, etc were the dominant theme. Okay, but so in a way, it almost sounds like Antifa in that 
people are just calling themselves Black Lives Matter and that makes them de facto Black Lives Matter and there isn't really that much control from the top, so to speak. Black Lives Matter is uh, obviously a good slogan. It carries well. Uh, people like it. Uh, and although there were many other slogans, <clears throat> uh, if there was any one single slogan shouted and printed, it was Black Lives Matter. But there were lots of others. But we also, and what's different about this wave of demonstrations, is the number of white people uh, who were involved. Uh, as I said, uh, demonstrations in every city of consequence in New Hampshire, demonstrations in Alaska, demonstrations in places where there are very, very few uh, black people at all. Most of these demonstrations were overwhelmingly white. And white people especially, uh, in order, well, not to feel strange, like you say that you are sometimes, speaking for or, or being put into a position where you appear to be speaking for black people, uh, they pick, pick up uh, the dominant slogan, the most accepted politically slogans, and those are the slogans of Black Lives Matter. Uh, so Black Lives Matter uh, has uh, been uh, not, not just echoed across the country, uh, but as their slogans have uh, assumed an exaggerated kind of resonance in places that could not possibly have a chapter of Black Lives Matter. Okay, now there's no, there's no, cons there's no conspiracy uh, involved here. It's it's a crowd acting like a crowd, uh, and especially uh, lots of white people who want to say the politically correct thing. And uh, in in 2020, that appears to be uh, Black Lives Matter. <laughs> okay, now. Um, you know, the United States does have a long history of anti-racism. You know, unlike Brazil, for example, there was a strong movement in the United States in the 1700s in some sectors coming from like the Quakers or whatever against slavery to the point where, it, you know, even though I understand it happened in some places anyway, it officially wasn't allowed in half of the country at that time, or in the, at least in the northern part of the country. And historically, the Ku Klux Klan and white supremacists have come up with insults to white people who try to show solidarity with black civil rights movement. And I know that Che Guevara said, if you tremble with indignation at any injustice committed anywhere in the world, then you're my comrade. But there's some people who seem to think that white people who would march in solidarity against police racist police violence or something like that have some kind of psychological problem. And the thing that I've seen cropping up recently is that the only reason, I saw it in an article that was even printed in Brazil that said the only reason white people are marching is because they're guilt, they feel guilty. It's not out of a sensation of solidarity, it's out of guilt. What is your take on this? Well, I wish that more white people in the United States uh, felt some guilt, if not solidarity. We, we have to remember uh, that the majority of white people in the U.S., uh, up to and including the last election, have always voted for uh, what we at Black Agenda Report call the white man's party. In the United States, one of the two parties one half of the duopoly system is always reserved for what we call the white man's problem party. That is the party uh, whose organizing principle is overtly uh, white supremacy. We always, one of those parties in the U.S. is always that. And what, the majority of white people vote for that party. We should not have an exaggerated sense of how advanced the United States is uh, or has been historically over Brazil. The U.S. had to fight a civil war uh, in which uh, 600,000 at least people died in order to end slavery in the slave states. Uh, slavery, or a system of Jim Crow, of black subjugation, was reinstated in the United States uh, less than 20 years after the end of the Civil War and lasted for that Jim Crow regime for almost a hundred years afterwards. In the years before the Civil War, before the South 
create, uh, provoked the Civil War by seceding, the U.S. Supreme Court had ruled that the Southern states, the slave-owning states, were correct, and that black people had no rights that any white man was bound to protect, and that whites in the northern states were obligated to capture and return uh, uh, runaway slaves. So let's not get carried away with uh, the strength of anti-racist, anti-slavery uh, opinion in the north or the south of the United States. Studio A has been closed due to the pandemic. Music this week is from Harry Brenner. This is Motor Row from his forthcoming solo release. Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen Radio Sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. <laughs>